Joel Beakey says, assurance that does not lead to a more holy walk is a false assurance. The person whose assurance is well-founded, who experiences true peace and joy, who is busy in the Lord's service and lives in close fellowship with him, will lead a holy life. A believer cannot persist in high levels of assurance while he continues in low levels of holiness. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer. This is my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hi. And we are so thankful that you're joining us here today. If you are new to the show, thank you for checking us out. Don't let the name fool you. We are very religious, very Christian. But the world that we live in, um, and especially the country that we live in, is not. It is becoming more and more secular, or as we would say, religionless. So what we try to do here on this show is just help Christians live a life that's pleasing to God, try to make sense of the world that's around us and um, how we think Christians ought to digest that. We are not pastors, theologians, or apologists, at least not yet. We're working I was it. just thinking like, um, I... <laughs> but currently we're just average folks loving the Lord. So Today, we're going to be um, discussing point two on our assurances of salvation. Um, if you're interested in point one, you can go find that on the channel. You can also check out our road to salvation that we just finished recently. Uh, but we'll, we'll be on point two today. We'll also be looking at a few stories from the news. And we're also going to discuss a documentary that we just watched. We're going to review a documentary. And it was wonderful. We watched it just the other night, and we think it would be worthwhile for others to watch. So that's why we're going to review it. Mm -hmm. um, and before we get to our plugs and prayer requests, we just want to remind you, if you're checking this show out, maybe consider subscribing to the show. Um, consider leaving us a nice review if you're on the podcast or liking the video if you're watching on YouTube or Rumble. And um, there's also in the show notes, you'll find some links that can help support the show, affiliate links, um, some links to go buy a t-shirt like the uh, Galatians 328 that I'm wearing. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And uh, there's also just, you know, simple buy me a coffee type support. And if you do support us, we'll be very grateful. Probably so grateful. We'll say a kind prayer for you. Um, but. Before we get to the news and all of that, honey, is there anything you would like to say? Um, yeah, I'm just asking for prayer. Any just words of wisdom, if you have any, um, I guess, experience with holding on to a house. And my idea is not selling our house. Um, we have a house in Arkansas. We've been renting out for eight years, about. Yeah, seven or eight. But it's, we were thinking of selling, but I, um, I don't know. I kind of feel like holding on to it, like an inheritance for the kids, whether they want to fix up anything that may need to be fixed up. We haven't looked at it ourselves in a while. We have like, you know, a company who oversees it. So we don't really, um, keep in contact with the people who are renting it ourselves. So 
would it be wise if we didn't sell it? And it was an inheritance to our children, maybe, or if they want to keep it and rent it out. Is is that a better route? What's because I don't want to be thinking like short term, you know, if we sell it, that's money for us now. I don't know. We're in a weird spot here in Florida and we're renting now a townhouse. So it's the only property we own in Arkansas. So it's the only property we own. <laughs> Not we don't own any. Well, other yeah, just the so. one in Arkansas. Yeah. We only own no, one just house. Just pray for us. We would we want to be people that accept wise counsel. Uh, we tell everyone else to accept wise counsel. We also want to accept wise counsel. But in typical Spencer and Nikki fashion, we decide to wait until the realtor goes, hey, I got someone that's interested. Here's a contract. And we're like, well, I don't really know. I didn't know there was a contract. So, <laughs> you know, we're kind of up against the wall, but we want to make a sound decision. We don't want to right. be thinking in the moment necessarily. So, you know, reach out to us. Let us know what you think. We'd certainly be grateful of that. Um, otherwise, things are going all right. We have a lot to be thankful for. A lot to be thankful for. If we're making this podcast, things are all right. It means we're not locked in jail somewhere, haven't been evicted from our home. <laughs> so that's all right. Um, so let's get our plugs out of the way here. Um, you guys know we're big fans of Cardinal Contingency Solutions. And we continue week after week to remind you guys if you are a, uh, you know, what we always consider first is you know a church or a ministry if you're getting into the missionary work or you work with missionaries you're sending missionaries out the door please consider reaching out to cardinal and seeing how they can help your missionaries get prepared you know wherever you're going in the world whether it's <laughs> africa the middle east asia um or seattle <laughs> you need to be prepared for what you're stepping into uh, Cardinal is the team that you want to talk to. They are the best in the world at contingency planning. So don't walk out the door and think, you know, well, I got a phone number. I'll call my brother if things get hairy. I'm sure your brother's a fine fella, <laughs> loves you a lot. Not probably what your first choice should be. Cardinal should be your first choice. They're godly men. And, um, Again, they're the best in the world at contingency planning. So reach out to them. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Also, proud members of the Christian Podcast community. So consider going to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to the Christian Podcast community um, feed. You get 60 or so podcasts that are all you know, godly men and women talking about godly things. We're on there, blessed to be so. But, you know, everything from, you know, movie reviews from a Christian perspective to street talk theology to, you know, live apologetics with Andrew Rappaport and everything in between, Bitcoin, you know, whatever you're interested in, they have somebody on there probably talking about it from a <laughs> godly perspective. So go check out Christian podcast community. Anything else? <laughs> no, I was just looking at the picture on the, the article. <laughs> Alrighty then. That means it's time 
So prepare yourself. Gird up your loins. Steal your soul. Empty your bladder. <laughs> as we get ready to take our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death and take a look at the news of the week. So by now, um, most of you, I guess if you're in tune to the news at all, you're probably aware of what's happened to um, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and her husband this past week. Um, you know, that he was attacked in his home. So we, obviously as Christians... I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. We pray but... for a speedy recovery. Uh, um, he pray that he will heal. Um, but also, if we're already in the mode of praying for somebody... Let's pray for their souls as well. Um, because if we're going to judge a tree by its fruit, yeah, I would say they need um, prayer to be reconciled to God. Yes. So consider that. And, you know, who knows what will spur someone on. Hopefully mm. this will be what spurs them on. But I do want to highlight this story just for a few reasons. Because, um, you know, first, I just simply don't believe the story, you know, that the mainstream liberal media is pushing. And mm -hmm. I did go to the original source, I think the Santa Monica Observer, they have a couple, quite a few articles, in fact, on, you know, what happened there, and they kind of detail some of the stuff that happened, you know, with Paul Pelosi, you know, that he was drunk, the cameras aren't working, all sorts of stuff around their house. Um, yeah. But I simply, you know, don't believe the narrative that the mainstream media is pushing. Um, and really, I don't agree also with their narrative that basically anyone who disagrees is a kook, right? Because that's kind of always their narrative. Yeah. So I read through this article over here from Yahoo News, and it's just, you know, it lays out basically every person in the world that says well, hold on, there might be more to this story, you know, and just labels them mm -hmm. a huge kook conspiracy theorist, yada, yada, yada. And of course, we'll have all these stories linked in the show notes, you can go check them out. Um, but honestly, the first story I read, <laughs> when I heard about this, was the Yahoo News story. And just reading about all the people they were calling kooks. And I was like, uh, well, if you already know, you're not supposed to believe the liberal media. So you read it and they're like, these people are all wrong. And you're like, maybe they're right. Because if they're calling them yeah. wrong. So that's first and foremost, right? Because we know that the liberal media cannot be trusted in any mm -hmm. way. Um, we know that they're largely an enemy of the people in this nation. They've proven that time and time again. So, you know, reading some of the original stories, you know, asking questions like, you know, how did this happen? Like, how does someone getting attacked in their house and the attacker gives them a bathroom break to go and call the police? And, you know, weird things that come up, right? There's a lot of odd things. He was actually in his underwear, is what I read. Yeah, the I guess attacker. they were like both in their underwear what? or who knows? Um, yeah, I mean, again, that's the problem, right? You don't know because the people that should have credibility that are telling you you know, don't have credibility um, because they've proven to be non-credible for as long as you can remember, right? Um, so again, reading those sorts of stories makes me believe 
more in the conspiracy than actually reading about the conspiracy, right? You read some of the conspiracy stuff and you're like, oh boy, I don't know. But then you read supposedly the credible people telling you all the conspiracies are kooks and you're like, maybe I do believe the conspiracy then. Um, so that's my first point, because we highlight it on here all the time when we talk about the news. We can't get lulled into these traps where we go, all right, I know that the liberal media is full of liars. Anytime they're talking, they're lying, you know. But this story, they're probably telling me the truth on, because I think that's what we right. do a lot. There's more odd things in this than in the Jeffrey Epstein. Well, you and know. even in the Jeffrey Epstein, right? Ah, oh, the cameras aren't working in his cell. You're like, boy, what are the odds? The one time we need the cameras to work. Well, same thing here. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul Pelosi gets attacked in his house. It has security cameras all over and policemen that monitor. And they're like, well, cameras weren't working and no one was monitoring. They're like, well, what are the odds, right? You know, very, very um, coincidental, I suppose. But we can't be lulled into the trap of going... I know they lie all the time, but we only realize that in retrospect, because that's what gets us so worked up into these sort of tizzies, is we believe, we believe, we believe, and then we're proven, oh, well, it's wrong. Oops, my bad. I don't think there's going to be a time where they're going to be telling the truth. And again, and and it stinks, you know? right? Because you don't want to just assume someone's a liar, but you also don't want to be a fool, right? And be like, ah, oh, everything they tell me, I believe. So that was kind of my first point here is we just have to resist the urge of going yeah but this one's probably true because it seems so weird and why would it really if they're talking to you odds are they're lying they're always guilty of what they're accusing others of right yes so um again we don't know what happened there who knows if the details will ever get out um but we just know that the people that are trying to tell us what happened are untrustworthy so that's right. First. The people telling us. Right. Because right. we don't need like more evidence that wicked people are wicked. Like that's what I was talking with Spencer about. It's like it's just another story telling us that wicked people are wicked. Like it's nothing new. And it's not surprising if it is true. Why would we be shocked? No, and I don't try to pick these news stories because like, oh, Nancy Pelosi's in the news. Hey, I try to pick them if I think they have a, something applicable to us. And like I think- you said, the news stations it's about them lying to us it's about who's giving us the info it's not really so much about are they the people caught in the act is it a conspiracy or you know right because if we realize that they do this in the little things right it'll help us to not be quite so swayed in the big things right you know because this is what happens when you know covid outbreaks happen well if you always have the mindset of like they don't ever tell me the truth So what, because what it should be driving us to, and this is a mundane story, you shouldn't spend any of your time looking into what happened to Paul Pelosi, it shouldn't make a difference to you. But for something big, it should drive you to, all right, they brought something to my attention, COVID. Now I need to go and do my own research. Like all they're doing is making me aware of something so that I can go and find the answers. You can't trust in them to give you the legitimate answer. Um, and that even goes doubly when it comes to things of faith and truth and eternal truth, right? Reject it outright until you can verify it yourself. Um, and then I said, you know, kind of for my second point here, 
not knowing really what's worse, you know, that they're outright lying to us, or that we would just assume that they will, and that we'll believe it. Um, or that we would just sort of assume that they're telling the truth. You know, that they can just say whatever they want, and we'll just go, well, that's probably the truth, right? Because um, that's maybe even more brainwashed, I suppose. Um, and then even from the angle of if we accept that what they're telling us is the truth, maybe this is the more damaging part. If they are telling us that this was the truth, um, that should be like, what is the state of our law enforcement in this nation? Mm-hmm. Like our law enforcement yeah. is this bad. We ought to be concerned, you know, because Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, she's third in line to be president of the United States. Incredibly important person on a national level. Um, and if her home is so poorly guarded that this David DePap guy, right, some drug addicted, crazy person, as they're telling us, could just walk up, break a window and just go into the house and attack the husband of the Speaker of the House, nearly kill him. What hope do we all have, right? <laughs> well, there's cameras all over the facility. Oh, they weren't working or they weren't being monitored. We got law enforcement. Apparently, they have cops uh, patrolling her house, cops that sit out in front of her house. Oh, they're just completely asleep on the job, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So they just yeah. allowed some crazy person to just, I don't know, I'm going to wander up to the uh, speaker of the house's house and go. And like he, the guy said, you know, in some of the stories, he was going to kidnap her or whatever. I don't know if that's true or not, but like he would have, if she would have been there, law enforcement wouldn't have stopped him. He was in the house. So what does this say about our law enforcement? And if they can't guard her house, then I mean, just think about what that means for your safety and protection, right? It's all up to you, basically, is what it means. Um, so that's maybe even, I don't know if that's more worse, if they're telling the truth about that, and you're like, boy, our law enforcement is not great, right? Because they aren't right. living in the hood. That's probably the richest neighborhood in, you know, Napa Valley, So there's nothing else live. going on to distract them. Yeah. And then the third possibility, which again might be worse than the other two, is if what they said is true, and our law for law enforcement is completely broken, and the very policies that Speaker Pelosi advocates for nearly got her husband killed. Because again, this guy is supposedly illegal immigrant, you know, he's a nudist in San Francisco, drug addict. Um, you know, homeless, crazy person, which is essentially the foundation of the Democrat Party, it seems like. So the very policies that they would advocate for almost kills her husband. Yet she's not going to reverse course on what her policies are. Right? Like she won't realize the error of her ways, but will instead work as hard as she can to bring this level of evil and chaos to a neighborhood near you. Like, hmm. you better hope the conspiracy is true. I know. You better hope that this was just sort of some weird, hippie, San Francisco, 
love nest, lovers quarrel. I don't know what. Because I think if the other options are, <laughs> are the true option, that's way worse for us as a society and where we're at. So, yeah, I agree um, with you. Those are good points you brought up to look at it from that point of view. A lot of things to pray about in regards to our nation, not so much just necessarily Paul Pelosi, though we should pray and, you know, hope that God would reveal himself and um, save their souls. But boy, God has revealed himself to everyone, though. He has. But, you know, we don't want to just ever give up on somebody, right? Um, because even as much as we don't like them being a politician, I don't want Nancy Pelosi to spend eternity in hell um, right. if she has the the chance to get out right so a lot yeah. of stuff to pray about but just you know think about this stuff right because again this story doesn't mean anything to you on the surface of nancy and paul pelosi in some weird situation in their house but just what it speaks to right a media you can't trust yeah um, law enforcement that's broken politicians that are so ideologically driven that they're willing to basically sacrifice their own family members on the altar of this ideology um, just really doesn't say a lot of good things about uh, the state of the nation there. So, right. Do you have any other thoughts on, I'm sure you don't, on Nancy I don't even want to talk about it more. It's just like, you said it all. You made some good points there for people to ponder. If you guys want to go and read those Sant, uh, Santa Monica Observer articles and read about the David DePap guy, uh, Pretty weird character, if any of that's accurate and true. So, uh, so for our next story, I just want to read this quote before we get here. I know I'm not normally a two-quote man in these episodes, but <laughs> I think this quote is very fitting before we get into our next uh, news topic here. And it comes from a fellow named Josh Marshall, who is the editor for Talking Points Memo. I've heard of that. Not terribly familiar. But he says, authoritarianism and secrecy breed incompetence. The two feed on each other. It's a vicious cycle. Governments with authoritarian tendencies point to what is in fact their own incompetence as the rationale for giving them yet more power. So this story you may have heard about as well comes from The Intercept. And do you want to read oh, this paragraph right here? Behind closed doors and through pressure on private platforms, the U.S. government has used its power to try to shape online discourse. According to meeting minutes and other records appended to a lawsuit filed by Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, a Republican who is also running for Senate, discussions have ranged from the scale and scope of government intervention in online discourse to the mechanics of streamlining takedown requests for false or intentionally misleading information. And do you want to just read this, um, this paragraph as well? Platforms have got to get comfortable with government. It's really interesting how hesitant they remain. Microsoft executive Matt Masterson, a former DHS official, texted Jen Easterly, a DHS director, in February. So I just want to highlight that little statement there again. 
He says, platforms have got to get comfortable with government. And notice it's the Microsoft executive, Matt <laughs> Masterson, a former DHS official. What's more comfortable than having government homeland security officials go and work on the executive board of our favorite big tech companies? How much more comfortable can you get? Um, and then it says down here in this next paragraph, um, I believe it right here, it says, in a March meeting, Laura Demlo, an FBI official, warned that the threat of subversive information on social media could undermine support for the U.S. government. And that was really, I think, what stood out to me with that quote from Josh, um, what was his name, Josh Marshall. You know, again, he says, authoritarianism and secrecy breed incompetence. The two feed on each other. It's a vicious cycle. Governments with authoritarian tendencies point to what is, in fact, their own incompetence as the rationale for giving them yet more power. So, you know, our mistrust of government is because of their incompetence mm -hmm. and their abuse in almost all respects. They abuse us. They're completely incompetent with what we give them, um, give them control over at every turn. So again, what's the solution for the government? Well, as Josh Marshall said, more power, of course. We just need more control and power so we can fix the errors that we caused. Um, oh God, it is a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. And they think that's somehow going to be what solves it. It's just going to get worse and worse. Yeah. So again, yeah. now, because they're complete liars in every respect, so we've lost all trust in them, what's their solution? Well, you know what? We'll decide what's true and what's false now. And we'll tell you what you're allowed to believe. Like. They're in charge of the truth. They're in charge of the truth, yeah. even though they're incompetent about everything. Um, but then again, right, we're lulled into that sense and go, well, but they won't be incompetent about this. This will be the one thing that they get right. These people are corrupt. And that's the very reason we don't have trust in them. And that's the very reason we're losing support in our government. We don't trust them. It's just like they're acting just like their father, the devil. That just makes me think he's a father of lies, but he wants us to think that he's telling the truth. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's like having an abusive spouse. And they're like, I'm not abusive, but if you try to leave me, I'll kill you. <laughs> like, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're abusive. No, I'm not, but I will be. Like, we don't trust them because they're liars. And now they're like, well, we're going to determine what's true and what's a lie. So you can't call them a liar. You can't call them out. Yeah. It's just it's so bizarre. And we're not going to keep going back to the article. I'll try to find some stuff in here. It's a pretty lengthy article. It's all me. Um, if this at all matters to you, go read it. It is lengthy, but it is far more um, information than we could just give you in this episode without it being three hours long. Um, but it's, you know, I think this is an important topic for us to be aware of. But it says in there, it says, how disinformation is defined by the government, this is important, how disinformation is defined by the government 
has not been clearly articulated. That's good to know. It goes on, and the inherently subjective nature of what constitutes disinformation provides a broad opening for DHS officials to make politically motivated determinations about what constitutes dangerous speech. Oh, boy. And this is what's frustrating, right? Because, well, we have a liberal, you know, president, liberal national leadership right now. So we don't want them to be in charge of what the truth is. But the liberals are like, yeah, you know, all those Trumpers and all those MAGA Republicans are dangerous. But this is always the problem, right? Once you give the government this control, if the country flips and Donald Trump comes back into office, well, now he has the same power to decide what's true and what's false. And you're going to be hating it just the same. Mm-hmm. This is where we have to realize it's not a Democrat versus Republican, left versus right. It's us versus them. Those of us being ruled and those mm-hmm. that are seeking to rule over us. Uh, we've got, you know, they've gotten us to a place where we're just constantly fighting with each other while they're just sitting there, you know, pulling know. the strings and raking in all the profit and all the power. And we're just fighting with each other instead of realizing if we just got together and focused on them you know, we might be able to solve the problem. So if you go, well, yeah, but you know, I trust Kamala Harris. Fine. I'm not telling you you shouldn't. I mean, I would tell you you shouldn't. But if you do, fine. Are you going to trust Ron DeSantis if he's in that position and he has the authority? Are you going to trust Donald Trump if he has that authority? Because again, once you open the door to this, everybody has access to it. Everybody, yep. So we should want nobody to have access to it and then instead say, hey, man, I'm smart enough to decide what I think is true and what's false. I don't need, you know, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris telling me what's true or false. Just give me the information and trust that I'm smart enough to figure it out. The problem is that really it's it does come down to like a spiritual issue because people. They elevate, they idolize. You know, one side or the other, whoever represents. And whatever they say is the truth. This is true for Republicans and Democrats, because then you have those people who they're Republican, but they claim Christianity because the Republican says he's Christian. But then you have the Democrats doing the same thing. And neither of the people on either side are opening up their Bibles to find the truth. They believe the truth through whoever says is the truth, but they're not going to the source themselves. And I think we need to unite on scripture and not who says they represent what is actually in scripture. Right. This is what we always say. I mean, we should be having our faith drive our politics rather than our politics define our faith or drive our faith. You know, if abortion is an anti-Christ position on the left side of the aisle, well, so so is like selfish greediness <laughs> that on the if that wants to be a republican side that ain't christian either right so we shouldn't be standing for either of those um now ultimately we live in a basically a, a two-party system by and large so you're sort of forced with the best of you know two bad options in a lot of senses but that's how our politics should be driving but we shouldn't be held back from criticizing I mean, we should be criticizing our own side more than the other side. I agree. Yeah. Pushing them to be better. Yeah. 
And if someone claims that they're a Christian, yeah, you're, you're going to be held to that standard then because you, you claim it. All yeah. right. Do you want to read this next paragraph here? Prior to the 2020 election, tech companies, uh, including Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Wikipedia, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Verizon Media met on a monthly basis with the FBI. Uh, what does CISA stand for? Did we say already? Yeah, that's the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Yeah, so they met on a monthly basis with FBI and CISA and other government representatives. Yeah, so monthly meetings with our government to decide what could be discussed openly. To me, I think that's chilling. Um, but if you want to go on and read that mm -hmm. next paragraph. But yeah, pretty chilling, I think. Jen Easterly, Biden's appointed director of CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, swiftly made it clear that she would continue to shift resources in the agency to combat the spread of dangerous forms of, mis of information on social media. One could argue we're in the business of critical infrastructure, and the most critical infrastructure is our cognitive infrastructure. So building that resilience to misinformation and disinformation, I think, is incredibly important, said Easterly, speaking at a conference in November 2021. Yeah, the Jen Easterlies of the world. Um, boy. I think <laughs> the thing about the Jen Easterlies. There are so many Jen Easterlies um, out there in government, in corporations that are willing to sort of step into these promotions and these different offices to silence you. You know, you think that like, that this might be an outlier, but it isn't. Because the second these offices and these jobs are established, there are plenty of people, I promise you, I, I mean, I am a government employee. There are plenty of people willing and able to step into these offices and these positions to work tirelessly to silence you. Um, they will work at the behest of their government employers, their corporate overlords. Um, because the thing is, these offices only exist because there's people willing to do the work. Yeah. So these people aren't like outliers. You know, I had someone come and talk to me before. They were like, oh, well, you know, the government, they'll never come for your guns because who's going to come and take them? <laughs> I was like, there'd be thousands of people that would sign up to come and take your guns away. We already have organizations to do all the riots and stuff. It's easy. They don't have to be. It's organized. They'll come from every state and they'll get paid to do it. Yeah, because yeah, these people like you might think an American mindset is like, who would accept a job to be a free speech silencer? Oh, there's tons. Jen Easterly is legion. <laughs> they are everywhere. And that's the dangerous thing. And that's why we need to be electing people that are seeking to get rid of government offices. We need far less government offices, not more. Um, because these people yeah. get put in positions and they're busybodies and they need stuff to do. And... Yeah, I mean, Jen Easterlies, they are everywhere, um, unfortunately. unfortunately. I mean, obviously, because they're meeting with these boards at Microsoft, Twitter, Verizon. 
So these same companies have their Gen Easterlies eagerly awaiting the government Gen Easterly <laughs> so they can come and, you know, talk about how they can quell your free speech. Um, and this article goes on in here and it says, um, CISA's goal, <laughs> their goal is to make platforms more responsive to their suggestions. So their goal at the cyber, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, their goal is to make platforms more responsive to the government suggestion. That's terrifying. And how are they going to do that? Oh, well, they're going to pressure them and strong arm them and uh, threaten them, I would imagine. Um, and then it goes on in here and yep. it says, down here, I think, in June, the same DHS Advisory Committee of CISA, which includes Twitter head of legal policy, trust and safety, um, v Vijaya Gade, Gady, God, I don't know, Gad, <laughs> and University of Washington professor Kate Starbird drafted a report to the CISA director calling for an expansive role for the agency in shaping the information ecosystem. Ecosystem? So Twitter's head of legal policy reached out to the government asking them to take a expansive role in shaping information ecosystems. Um, and then there was just one last paragraph I wanted to read in here. I'm probably not going to be able to find it, but it's in the article. It says, um, Jeff Hale, the director of election security initiative at CISA, recommended the use of third-party information-sharing nonprofits as a clearinghouse for information to avoid the appearance of government propaganda. Oh, my gosh. So they're looking to set up basically, you know, the equivalent of a money laundering scheme for like a government propaganda laundering scheme. And what this really made me think of when I read this if we remember back to the distant, distant past of 2020 <laughs> and uh, all of our so-called national Christian leaders, right? The Christian talking heads, the Tim Kellers and the Russell Moores of the world. You could just say maybe these are the folks that might be a propaganda laundering um, sort of nonprofit type of agency. Because that's what they did for the COVID vaccine. They already have these people targeted. They already have a plan. Right. I mean, they did this exact thing with COVID. They took a government employee, I think Francis Schaefer. He pitched this to some of the sort of more, I guess, willing and willing to be propagandized Christian leaders and told them about the wonders and miracles of this God-given vaccine. And they sent them out to their flocks to go and launder this message to the Christian nation. And so many of them did. Well, shut your church. Put your masks on and take a vaccine for God's sake. It's ordained by him, don't you know? And they were more than happy to do it. And that's what they're saying. They're like, no, no, that's actually a government policy is <laughs> to set these up. So now you can't even trust your nonprofits, your whoever agencies that you think are working for us they very well could be a show for government propaganda as well it's just <laughs> yeah, you can't say oh they're 
a church leader, they would never. No, again, you've got to test all things. And I mean, it's a shame. But yeah, I mean, we're living in a web of lies, it seems, where, I mean, if you don't know your Bible, and you're not actively working diligently to do that, boy, you are just setting yourself up to be just blown around by the wind, whatever way the wind blows. Yeah, you guys, you got to be in the word. There is like, only one place to so get the truth. There's so much deception and lies. So yeah, please open your Bibles and start reading it. And more so than just reading it, believe, believe what you it. read. That's the um, thing. Because that's will... not changing. Yeah, they like to say, I read my Bible over and over, but. Yeah, don't just read it, it, learn it. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I wanted to bring this story up, obviously, just from a, a national citizenry perspective, this is obviously scary. Um, but we've talked about this issue or something pertaining to this fairly often and fairly recent. And I was just like, this is why digital church is a danger. You know, we've made that case here before, and we've seen a big push recently um, with Christian churches and even congregants saying online church is perfectly acceptable. You don't have to be in a local church. You can just watch online, whatever happens to be. Well, once you change the definition of what church is, yeah, that seems like it makes sense. Right. I mean, if all you care about is you and you want to be completely self-focused, then sure, online church makes sense. Um, so yeah, you can just disregard all the scriptural, um, support for a local body of believers, gifts for the body of Christ, all of that. And just say, I don't care. I just want someone to feed me. Mm -hmm. Right. That's a possibility. Um, but I think this is another reason why online church is a danger, you know, because when you go online only to church, you know, or if you are a church and you set up an online only, you know, we read about T.D. Jake's daughter, who basically shuttered a mega church in favor of going online only. So if that's your policy, you're essentially building your church in a basically Marxist, anti-Christ, you know, governmental, big tech, cyberspace fear. That's where you're building your church. I'm just thinking like, Years down the road, it's going to be like more common for church to be online and so rare to see like a church gathering in person. Like, is that going to be a rare thing in the future? People actually gathering. If we don't wake up to it, it will be. Um, That's the fear. You know, we're already such an isolated culture, you know, know, in our society. Now you get rid of Sundays and Wednesdays and youth groups and like, you're like, oh, what are you going to, why are you praying for me? That's so weird. Don't, Don't touch lay me. hands on people. Yeah, you might have anymore. COVID. Don't but touch I was just, me. I was just telling you, like yesterday or something, how like convenience is has destroyed society. It's destroyed family. It's destroyed relationships, our culture. Convenience isn't a good thing, really. No, comfort and convenience comfort, is killing us. Yeah, and convenience, especially convenience in the church. Yeah, for the sake of like online, it's convenient. I don't have to do anything. You're just encouraging laziness with convenience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but this idea of building your church in this, you know, cyberspace realm, it just means that they have control over really 
who can hear you, what you can say. They have yeah. control over whether or not you can stay online. Right. Um, they can take down everything. Yeah. They can they make can, you not exist. They can make your yeah. not, you know, your message not reach anybody. They could kick you off platforms. You're completely at their, you know, whim. Um, but they could even take what you say and twist it to their advantage. You know, you know, in a few years, who knows where our nation is, but potentially, you know, your sermon on the sanctity of marriage, that could be turned into hate speech. Um, if we're not careful. And if you're on their platforms, then that's what it'll be. Um, so I just think we got to be very careful about that. You know, we can't put all of our eggs in, you know, the authoritarian God haters hands and just think that good things are going to come out of it. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this is accurate cause I'm not terribly, you know, familiar, but it made me seem like this was sort of a word of faith kind of belief in church, you know, like, yeah, sure. I'm going against scriptural teaching on how to run and oversee a church. And, you know, I'm kind of making my bed in the devil's playground, blinking arms with freedom haters, God haters. But you know what? I'll just speak success into being. And God's just going to co-sign whatever I decide to do, even if it's against his will. That you just simply can't have that mindset. <laughs> we need to be less like the world in all of our dealings, but especially when it comes to the church. Um, you know, the Bible hasn't changed. They weren't waiting on the internet era until, <laughs> you know, the third Testament to come out. It's not happening. So um, that was my big, big reason for wanting to highlight the DHS story. Um, you know, obviously, just like I said, from a citizenry standpoint, it's scary and it should concern us all. But from a religious standpoint, I think this should be more well, of a call to get back into more, um, you know, face-to-face -face meetings, you know, maybe rely less on technology um, for sharing the gospel message. Right. And they, I mean, those people who want to have it be all online, and if they do get taken down for speaking the truth, then that isn't going to stop the gospel. That's no. probably going to further, I mean, they're going to be like, well... I guess we're going to go back and do regular church. You know, it'll be a blessing if it gets taken down. It'll be a blessing to the people. Because if they were having just watching online, maybe maybe people want to go back to church, you know? I hope they preach the truth and get kicked off online, you know? So right. what? Well, you'd like to see them bold enough. But again, this was our big problem with the whole YouTube thing in the first place is if you become just a online church, you know, you're no longer really a pastor, you're a content creator. And when you're a content creator, the, I guess the natural flow of things is you're no longer solely concerned about adhering to the word of God. Now your biggest concern is adhering to the algorithm of whatever platform you're on. Because if you rock the boat on the algorithm, you're not on the platform anymore. So if that means you got to sort of be loose with the scriptures, you got to sort of soft sell the scriptures, yeah, maybe not right. touch on certain points because it might, well, then that's just what you'll have to do. Yeah, we just can't talk about the sanctity Everybody of marriage anymore an because they just don't like that, right? The ones so. that choose to be online, you know that that's their plan or else, why? 
They're planning on not preaching the truth if that's the route they're taking. Yeah. I mean, even if they don't know it, that's unintentionally what they're getting themselves into. So do you have any last thoughts on any of these news stories before we roll into our documentary review? Let's do a documentary review. All right. So the documentary that we wanted to review, um, a little bit off the beaten path of what we've talked about here today. And, um, I guess over the course of the last few months and stuff, but I still think it's immensely important for believers. And let me get it pulled up here. It's called um, Borrowed Future, How Student Loans Are Killing the American Dream. And it's by Dave Ramsey and his team. And, you know, obviously, as the title would indicate, um, it's about the damage of the student loan industry. Um, specifically, that's what it's about. But I think it's very easy to extrapolate out from that how this sort of infects our entire sort of sick, debt-ridden culture that we live in. Um, so just for the first, I guess, question here, honey, what was, as an overview, just what did you think kind of as the document or think about the documentary as a whole? I just thought it was really eye-opening. I mean, I mean, adults who've gone to college know the truth, but I mean, I think it's just the importance of teaching the kids who are going to be going into it. I thought it was laid out pretty simply, easy to understand. I don't know why anybody would continue to take that route. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, obviously for me as an overview, I think me and Nikki were both big fans of Dave Ramsey. Um, we really like what he teaches pretty much about everything, you know, life and obviously money is what he's kind of most known for. Big fans of Dave Ramsey. Um, the documentary itself was very well done. You know, it didn't look like some low budget. I mean, it was a really well done documentary, well made, uh, very informative. And it was really just an enjoyable documentary to watch. Mm -hmm. So we certainly recommend you give it a watch. You'll probably um, have our kids watch it. We're going to watch it again. We are going to watch it again. Uh, we have some kids that are getting into ninth grade, so it's something for them to start thinking about. But, you know, so if you have children, certainly something for you to watch, and I would consider watching it with them, you know, depending on their age. If you're about to go to college, or even if you're in college, I would consider watching this. Um, because I think the student loan crisis thing is something that we all sort of, you know, we all know about, but it's something that we tend to ignore, or we just kind of push out of our minds if it doesn't directly affect us. But we should care about this. Um, because the student, like I said, the student loan crisis affects so many areas of our, you know, again, that sick debt ridden culture that we live in today, because we are absolutely just a debtor nation, um, in so many respects. So We'll kind of do this the way we normally do reviews and stuff, just, you know, going off a few different points, can't cover the entire documentary. So just a few of the highlights and then just add in anything else that we think um, makes sense as we go along. So um, kind of like what Nikki said in her overview, the first point that stood out to me um, was early on in the intro, you know, kind of as the documentary was starting and then just in the first few minutes was really just hearing all the sort of so-called experts, the politicians, and then, you know, like the journalists, and obviously you could easily wrap in, you know, the school counselors, school administrators, and all these sort of people. Um, what I would consider endlessly propagandizing the sort of current form of school loan, um, 
college environment that we live in. Because I think it's always a little sad and a little appalling to me personally to hear people that you would assume know better just continue to sort of shove this negative lifestyle choice in your face. Because like Nikki said, you'd think they would know better, but they know it's like don't sacrifice all for that degree. Like there's no amount of money that we wouldn't go into debt for, you know, to, to have that degree. And that's what a lot of the people on there would say, right. You know, that, you know, they would go, I mean, one of the guys on there that they interview has a million dollars in school loans. And apparently there's over a hundred people in our country that have over a million dollars in school loans. Um, and I just want to play this small little quick snippet just as a highlight of, you know, what in, it gets much more in depth throughout this uh, documentary, but just this little quick snippet here. Is a four-year college degree still a good investment? I mean, not surprisingly, we at the principal think it's a good, a good investment yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, a student is going to earn a million dollars more over their lifetime of career, if, opposed to if they didn't have a, a college degree. They'll be more nimble. They have lower rates of unemployment. Even Robert Wood Johnson said they're going to live longer because they're likely going to have better insurance. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Should we get to the ranking? Yeah. Okay. Let me say something I forget. I just thought came to me. I know you have way more to say, but... He said they're going to live longer because they're going to have better insurance. Okay. Tell me what stress does to the body. What's the number one stress for people? Yeah, finances. Right. Um, so that stress from your debt, is it going to affect your health at all? But your insurance will, will take care of it. Right, right. No, it's just, I think that's just kind of a, per, and obviously, I mean, he was kind of hard to hear because he talked really fast, but he said he was from the Princeton Review. Um, but that's, it's marketing right? Yeah, you have a higher ceiling in a lower floor, you're going to make a million more dollars over the course of your lifetime. You know, all these rosy positives. Um, if you don't go you to college, all throughout this, he's saying he's pretty much saying if you don't go and get this degree, then you can't afford good insurance was my takeaway. Yeah, which like, what, you know, obviously, if you listen to Dave Ramsey, going to tell you the complete opposite, right? We'll trust Dave Ramsey. He's a believer. Uh, we'll trust in him. But you know, I was, I might have mentioned on here before, I did a few years as an Air Force recruiter um, in my younger days. And it was one of the things that even back then, you know, before I was really engaged, I mean, I was 26 when I was a recruiter, but it floored me then, you know, we would go to these, you know, high schools and they would have their career fairs and their college fairs and stuff like this. And I would go and I remember one time in specific, they were giving a briefing to, um, you know, it was like kind of an auditorium or not an auditorium, but like a gym set up with bleachers. And there was a group of students or maybe 50 or hundred students. And they had like six different colleges. And then me as the air force rep going to talk to them. And it was just all six of these colleges got up right in front of me. And basically what their pitch was is how easy we're going to make it for you to get student loans and come to our school, like one school after another easy process, easy process. It's going to be super easy. And I remember getting up there and I didn't even really know anything. And what I said to him, I was like, did you guys just hear what all these schools said to you? They basically just told you one after another, how easy they are or how easy it's going to be for you to get riddled with decades of debt. <laughs> I was like, join the air force. We'll pay for your college for free and you'll have a job. Right. But I didn't know that happened. Yeah, It was just one after another. And you're like, <laughs> man, these guys, 
Again, I'm really proud know of you for better. saying that. I didn't know. You never told me that story. Oh, yeah. What That's keeps me awake at crazy. night. So, yeah, that was the first one. Just, again, hearing the experts, so-called, that are just so eager to get out there, right? Because the school's paying them. It's Go such a weird line. It. We'll make it easy for you. Why would it be hard for them to get a student loan to begin with? They're implying that it's hard and that they're helping them with something that they're going to get. You know what I mean? They don't it's need their bizarre. help to no. get in debt. No, we shouldn't be making it easier. I mean, the pitch should be, we're going to make it less expensive for you to go to college. Right. Ugh. We're going to make classes on your schedule so that you can work to pay, you know, all so the things. So they can be would... thankful that they got a loan at all, thinking that, oh, maybe I wouldn't have gotten it. That's such a weird spin they put on it. It's bizarre. And again, that adults would be going to high schools to tell children to do this. Because um, again, high school kids are children, right? And we're going to pitch them on something we should know better. Um, but the second point here, uh, they brought <laughs> up a few times, and this kind of goes on to the marketing ploy. They brought up a few times in there, a couple different people, this lie of student loan debt being good debt. That's what they called it. It's good debt. And, you know, this is how it really gets sold. You know, this is how, you know, at the, the school that I went to, they say it on this documentary a few times. And this is how they sell it to children. Um, it's good debt. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, there's bad debt. You don't want bad debt, like a credit card. This is that good debt. So it makes you think like, well, I want the good debt. Sure. You know, it's know. not a bit, it's not a burden, but it's not good. <laughs> it's debt, right? Um, and many times it's massive amounts of debt. It's tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt. And kids are really indoctrinated into not even thinking twice about taking it. Um, you know, because, and this was something else that was eye-opening to me as a recruiter, being in high schools over and over again. It is, I guess, as close of an indoctrination as you'll ever really see because kids from the time they're in junior high, it's, I go to high school, go to college, get my job. Go to high school, go to college, get my job. That is the roadmap to success that we've brainwashed kids into. So even when I would talk to them about, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. I'd be like, man, $25,000 a year is a really expensive way to try to figure out what you want to do. Yeah. You know, and then you'd even talk to them. Hey, you know, do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have an older brother. Like, oh, well, how old is he? He's 27, 28. And you're like, cool. Does he have his college degree? Is he well-established in the career of his choice? Is he advancing in that career, making a good living? And almost every one of them would be like, nah, he lives at home. You're like, they all live at home. <laughs> None of them, because you don't know what you want to do until you're 30, right? For the most part, but too late, right? You go and get that $80,000 worth of school loans to be a high school teacher, only to find out in three years, I hate being a teacher. And they don't get paid anything. <laughs> I almost was going to be a teacher. Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was no. like, well, my friend's going to be a teacher. Oh, I guess I'll do that. If she's doing it, I'll do it too. Like, I had no idea. But no. I didn't. Thankfully, I didn't. No, by the grace of God, you didn't. But, you know, the bigger <laughs> problem with, right, because they have experts and professionals. And these are people that we are taught to trust, right? They're my teachers. They're whoever, the, the principals, administrators, and counselors, and these are college, you know, professors, and whoever, right? We're supposed to trust these people. And they're all out there selling us 
down this disastrous road. So we just assume, well, they wouldn't steer me wrong. They wouldn't tell me it's good debt if it wasn't good. They wouldn't tell me that this is the best thing for my future if it really isn't the best thing for my future. But good debt is a marketing ploy. <laughs> that yes, is a is. marketing term if I've ever heard one. Student um, loan, student debt. Because it's only yeah. good for the lender. <laughs> because it's good for a lender to be able to collect interest on your debt for 30 years. Um, it's a prison for you. You know, if you're that high school teacher that took out $60,000, worth of debt to make $35,000 a year, that's a prison um, that you aren't getting out of. So what would be good, what they should be selling you on is eight years of college, you know, take a year off in between every year to save up money, eight years at a, you know, state school, a local college, and you get out debt free. That's really smart. Four years of college, plus a $50,000 student loan to repay. That is not a good choice. And you ought not to do that. Um, except, you know, rare instances, right? Or if your family can afford it, sure. But if it's just all I got to take out, you know, because they tell about some of the kids in here, some of the adults at this point now, and, you know, they're just all like, I mean, you don't know, you just get accepted to a college and then, hey, here's financial aid. And well, you can't take any classes until you have a zero balance, but you owe all this money. So what are you going to do? I mean, I guess the, the student loans right there, I'm just going to take the student loan. I'll worry about it later. Well, because they're not knocking on your door and asking for that money. But they even point yeah. out in there that like, just because they ain't asking for it doesn't mean the interest ain't building. So you're not making any payments. Crazy. You're just living carefree. And they're just racking up that money you have to pay them or they even dive into this you know about sally may and just this whole corruption of the government you know backed and government supported loan industry and i mean if there's ever been anything that's predatory in our society oh, it's yes. probably the school uh student loan system so um point number three here and this is just a small point Maybe not even worth mentioning. It might just be nitpicky for me here, but Nikki did bring up a point that I missed. And it was a point in the documentary. They mentioned that school loans began in 1958, <laughs> which is right in the middle of the baby boomer generation. Is that any coincidence? You know, after she pointed out to me, I was like, of course it was, right? Maybe the worst generation that's ever been birthed in this nation. You know, they brought us untold levels of depravity and evil in our society. Well, just add trillions of student loan debt to their ledger as well. Um, now, of course, not all baby boomers. I think Nikki and I's parents are fine folks. <laughs> but the generation as a whole, uh, not been a huge blessing for our society. I think they said only a... You could only get a loan of $1,000 per year back then. Right. When they first started in 1958, $1,000 per year, which I think is also very, I guess, spot on for the baby boomer generation. They sort of reaped this little bit of a benefit and then just took it and ran it straight into the grave when they got in control of it um, years later. So... Yeah, they got a little bit of a benefit. You know, feminism took off. Women were being treated equal. What did they do? Well, now Women boys can be girls and just yeah. cut your genitals off. And you're like, yeah, that didn't, this didn't really go, went go well very sideways. long. So, 
Yeah, thanks, boomer generation. Um, but God bless you all. Hope you, uh, your souls are in paradise someday. Uh, so the fourth point here uh, that they kept going back to multiple times, is they had a roundtable discussion um, with, you know, one of the interviewers. He had a roundtable with like six different high schoolers. And he was asking them, you know, just all these different questions about their college plans and sort of having a back and forth with them, which was pretty good. But one of the girls in there, she said her mother always tells her, do what makes you happy. I think that's a lot of parents, though. It is a lot of parents. And that's why I wanted to bring it up here. Because my goodness, is that terrible advice to give a child um, to give really anybody, a child, especially, though. And then even on top of that, if you're a Christian, that is awful advice to give a Christian. Well, just do what makes you happy. The advice should be do what's right. <laughs> you At know? what age do you start telling your kid that when they're two? Whatever makes you happy. Like, well, and I think that's where we are been in telling society, your kid that? <laughs> is do what makes you happy. And we see where that gets us, right? Um, you know, because doing cocaine, right? Driving a sports car on curvy roads at a extreme speeds. I even put down in my notes, hey, you could even marry a stripper and you'd be happy for a moment, right? But doing cocaine, driving at fast speeds, marrying a stripper, that might bring you some momentary happiness, right? But that's not what is right. That's a very wrong decision to make. That's following your heart and your heart is deceitful. Like, Well, it's following your impulses, even because it doesn't make any sense. We should be teaching kids to do what makes sense. Um, it's not what's right. We should be teaching them to do what's right. And it, it's not wise. We should be instructing our kids to do things that are wise, right? Doing cocaine and driving at fast speeds is not wise. Even in, in the moment, it seems fun. It makes you happy. Um, so none of that makes any sense. So we should avoid instructing our children into such folly. You know, that's not instruction we should be giving them. Because kids cannot be counted on to make wise decisions long term for themselves or others. This is why they need parents to lead them and guide them properly. Guide them. Because they don't know how to make those decisions. You don't need a parent if you can just follow your happiness. No, and one of the kids in that roundtable even says that, like, well, you know, it's important that you do, you know, what makes you happy in the moment. You know, plus you want to think about what makes you happy long term. You're like, you know, what's funny too is because so many kids today, you know, I, you listen to athletes or, you know, fighters or even in music and stuff and they talk about grinding. I'm grinding, I'm grinding. And we all love to talk about the grind and, you know, putting in that hard work. But nobody actually wants to do any of it. They want to talk about it. But grinding would be like, Hey, man, I'm going to grind through school and I'm going to work my tail off at a full time job. Instead of just being like, no, I'm making myself happy right now. (laughs) That is the complete opposite of grinding. That's every morning when your alarm goes off at 5 a.m. and you go, well, I'm not happy waking up right now, so I'm not going to the gym. (laughs) That's not grinding. That's not, you know, that's choosing your happiness in the moment. And it's really a dumb way to live your life. And it's an anti-Christian way to live your life. We are to be wise. We are to be doing what's right, living according to the truth, not our momentary impulses. 
one of the girls in the beginning, she said that her goal was just to not live paycheck to paycheck. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, that's a really high goal for these days to not live paycheck to paycheck. Like you think that that's like not a big deal, but it is like, that's what everybody wants, you know? And then I think that you said that maybe she was one of them. She decided to not go to college or some like she heeded the advice. I think that was one of the girls that heeded the advice, maybe. Yeah, I don't remember which one it was. I mean, he did give a little, you know, snippet at the end of yeah. it, kind of where each of the round table kids because she wasn't looking off. for happiness. She was just not. Yeah, she just didn't want to struggle. So I think that she right. <laughs> heeded the advice. But and that's so wise, because they even make note in there that the number one thing that college students or college graduates say they want to ac accomplish after completing school is to pay off their student loans. Yeah. And one of the probably major factors of leading them to living paycheck to paycheck is that burden of student loan debts. You know, because you're paying four, five, six hundred dollars a month, depending on how much you take out in school loans. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, you know, and I think the the myth as well is that there's some extremely lucrative, high paying job just waiting for you. It isn't there. <laughs> there's not a corner <laughs> office in Manhattan waiting for every kid who graduates I know. You know, from I the think... University of New Mexico. They're not waiting for you. They're waiting for the dude that may have a degree plus has been at that company for 25 years. Right. That's who's getting it, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, we have this faulty idea that like, well, I'm going to get this degree. And, you know, and one of the kids in there, or two of them, I think, even talk about, you know, going to these super bougie schools. And we think somehow like, well, if I go to Princeton and I get this degree, I'm walking into six figures. Like, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. You could be a lawyer. You could be a doctor. You're not walking into a six-figure job. You're walking into residency for seven years, making 50 grand a year and still having school loans. They only, I think they said in there, take six months off, right? Before you have to start paying them back. Yeah, it's scary. That's why they all go back home and live with their parents probably. But I was thinking how like, you know, you get out and you have all this debt and their number one goal is to pay off the debt. And that debt is what keeps them afraid of starting a family like they're like I literally can't feed myself how would we feed any kids like that other couple on there yeah. the husband was a teacher and she didn't know getting to the marriage which wouldn't have made her not want to marry him but she didn't know about all his debt and they were paying all their bills and everything first and like their grocery bill budget was was last and I think that's how most people would do it anyway. They're like, all right, food isn't that important. We not eat a lot. That's not how our budget but, is run. <laughs> I mean, people who are in that situation, I mean. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but yeah, she even said something on there like, you know, it makes you consider like putting off having children. Like I can't afford having kids. And I think this is all another scheme of Satan, really the attack on the family and then by the time yeah. the debt is paid off too old to have kids you know no, i mean i certainly so think that this plays into a larger satanic scheme you know that we've talked about in this debtor society this 
society where you essentially can't have a single income family anymore if you want to live some sort of enjoyable life. The wife has to be out of the home. You can't have your wife stay home and raise your children. You've got to send them off to the the public school, right? To have them raised by these, you know, indoctrination right. centers. Because it's, it's your free daycare pretty much. Yeah. You gotta just go and get on that. And it's just such a lie. You know, and it felt so sad to watch these young girls who, I mean, raising a godly family, you know, investing your time in your home and your family is the highest calling, right? That's what God's designed you to be. Not to say that you can't work at some level, but like all of their goals and dreams and aspirations are wrapped up in, especially in today's society, you're going to go and sit in front of a computer screen for eight hours a day, making somebody else rich. That's your idea of freedom and prosperity. It's such a twisted mindset. And I know, whatever, the world, the secular materialistic world they don't have any hope or any understanding. But for Christians, we've got to get out of that mindset. There is no higher calling than raising a godly family, running a godly home. And God's placed that burden largely on the shoulders of women. And so many women today shirk that responsibility and think it's somehow lesser than the burden that men have been placed under, which is to provide and support for that family. It's not a lesser burden. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ask most men that are working, and they'll be like, I'd love to be a stay-at-home dad, right? And not to say that that's even accurate, because again, they would be outside of their lane as well. But it's just yeah. it's such a lie of the devil to trick women into thinking that somehow being saddled with children and just living at home and taking care, that should be the place of your most joy, is doing that in the home. But instead, we're it like, is. well, if I go and work for you know, Sally may and drowned other kids in a lifetime of debt so we can make money, then I'll feel great about myself. Oh my gosh. No, no. you won't. I was just thinking after watching this, I'm like, going to college and all this debt. And I was like, what a pyramid scheme this actually is. And I'm like, there's a few who make it out because they talked on there about all the scholarships that I had no idea you get scholarships for just the most random things or like short people, tall people, like the most pickiest things you can get scholarships for. Well, that was one of the good parts in here. They do sort of weave in some intelligent ways of going to college and people show how they did it and got out debt free. Um, So they do offer some alternative routes in there, which was beneficial, I think. Yeah, I mean. But it does seem a bit like a pyramid scheme where, you know, you take out you know, $100,000 worth of school loans, which is your product, go and sell it, man, make a killing and a bunch of money for yourself. And then you're like, I didn't sell any of it. And they're like, Oh, yeah, you still had to pay us the money, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still get our money. Well, like, yeah, oh. they still do. Oh, so I just I don't have anything left. Then they're like, No, no, but Sally Mae's rolling in dough. You know, they're taking five day Hawaii vacations for their staff. So they're thankful that you took out those loans. Isn't that crazy? And they're thankful that you're going to pay them back for the next 30 years. And they're hopeful that you'll only pay the minimum <laughs> so that they can stretch that interest payment out. Because I think they even show like little clips in there of people uploading videos like to YouTube or whatever, of you know, four or five different people. And one of the girls was like in her car. She looked like a nurse maybe. And she was like, 
let's see what I've paid on my student loan so far. And she's like, or she says something like, let's see what 13 years of paying on my student loans has gotten me. So 13 years of payment. She's like, I've paid off like $7,500. She's like, let's see how much interest I've paid off in 13 years. $19,000. So of the, what is that, twenty six dollars or $27,000 she'd paid off on her loans, only seven of it actually went to pay the principal. I can't believe that. That's a gut punch because you're doing the same thing for your car. You're doing the same thing for your credit card. You're doing the same thing for your home. You're literally just paying money so CEOs of these banks can go on, you know, buying new yachts and taking, uh, you know, their staff to Hawaii on these lucrative trips. So it's, you know, stomach turning, I think. But uh, I think I just have one or two more points here. So they made a point in there that the college rankings, they're like college rankings are ruining us. Um, and they made a point about the U.S. News and World Report magazine, and they do their, you know, probably the most famous uh, ranking of best colleges and universities, you know, in the nation, around the world, and all this sort of stuff. And they talked about how really that simple act of ranking these universities has almost brainwashed students, in a sense, if you want to look at it, brainwashing into thinking that like the higher rank the college. That means like more to their life than it actually will, you know, and then on the other side, it incentivizes these colleges to really charge a premium for their product Mm -hmm. because of their ranking. And they even, well, and I think when you start attaching rankings and these sort of things, you know, everything in America for us in this secular material world is a brand, right? Everything's a brand for us. And I think even colleges can be a brand that can be part of our personal brand, right? Because two of the girls, there are only two girls. And it was interesting that both of the girls said the same thing. You know, there was like four boys and two girls. And both of the girls made kind of the exact same basic point. And they both decided that the schools that they were dead set on going to, I think one was Duke and one was NYU. And they mentioned both of them were $75,000 per year tuition. Um, And they both picked those schools largely because of how it made them feel sort of what the school said about them, you know, (laughs) 75 grand a year. Um, And I just think, it's because it's sort of a brand. I went to Duke. Don't you know what that means about me? How many people make 75 grand a year? No, it's insane. Um, but I just think we're so self-focused. We're so ego-driven in our country. Yeah. That even when confronted with the fact, because the guy brings up in there when they say it's 75 grand a year, and he's like, that's a $300,000 school loan for an undergraduate degree. Like, are you out of your mind? The fact that you would accept that (laughs) should probably tell you you're not smart enough to go to Duke, right? (laughs) I know. More sense to go. Because the girls even say, I don't have a way to pay for it. It's going to have to be school loans. So he's even saying like, that's insane. That is insane to think that you would even sign off on that. Right. 
but it doesn't seem to penetrate sort of our self-idolatry, you know, that this is my brand. My brand is to go to NYU because what is that going to say about me? It's like, just don't go to, you'll have more money in the bank if you don't go to those colleges. I don't know why it's easy to do the math. Why? It would seem easy. But again, this is why you don't allow children to make these decisions for themselves. Right. Um, or yeah. you do everything you can to steer them away from making such dumb decisions. Obviously, when a kid's 18, 19 years old, they can do what they want. But you should be instructing them as they're growing to avoid such foolhardy decisions. Because um, again, if you have parents that are just saying, do what makes you happy, right? Um, like somehow just doing what makes me happy means it's all going to turn out okay. So you know, yeah, $300,000 in school loans. Yeah, I get why that sounds like a bad idea. But that's what's going to make me happy. And in the end, that means it's going to work out okay. Because the one girl in there and she was kind of belligerent, you could tell she kind of seemed like a knucklehead. But she kept saying that like, no, this is just the price you have to pay. Like you just have to be willing to pay, to do whatever it takes, which is funny because in her mind, doing whatever it took meant take the easy route. When in reality, do whatever it takes means, yeah, I'm, it might take me 10 years to get out of NYU, but you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to work. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to do whatever I can take summer classes. That's doing whatever it takes. Just signing up for the easy route is not really the mindset of doing whatever it takes. That's just taking the easy route. So I was like, hearing that girl say that, just do what makes you happy. You know, whatever, you know, makes you feel good, stokes your ego, strokes your ego, your self-idolatry. We've got to be teaching our kids wisdom. (laughs) We got to be teaching them sound judgment. Um, Because kids don't even know what happiness is. And even they had ha- someone else define it for them. They did. The schools have been brainwashing them that yeah. that is happiness. They all think that that's happiness. And it's such a fleeting emotion, happiness, right? Because we should be teaching them as Christians to pursue joy um, because joy isn't fleeting. Joy isn't momentary or impulse driven. Like I'm filled with happiness when I go to GNC in a protein bars on discount. Like, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot like, of things you can find happiness in and it's the little things they're going to learn. It is the little things. And that's that happiness. Make you happy. Because then as soon as I buy that discount protein bar and bite it and I realize why it was on discount, I'm no longer happy. It's fleeting, right? But like you could equate that to the joy of being in shape, working out for 17 years. And now I'm athletic. I'm not, you know, overweight. I don't hate the way I look. I don't. Well, that brings me some level of joy. That's maybe a bad example. But I think it's a, you know, you can understand what I'm trying to say. I have joy over it, too. It's not just about you. (laughs) You know, and even you could say the joy of a 17 year marriage to a woman I love. And not only do I love, but I like. She's probably the only person I want to hang out with. Well, that's you might be able to go on Tinder and sweep, you know, swipe right for a night of happiness. But again, you've got to wake up in the morning with that person. And that happiness may be fleeting. Whereas if you get married to someone you love and, you know, build a family and a life, that's joy, you know, that can extend on. So happiness, it comes and goes, do not 
build your life on happiness. Um, it is a very fleeting emotion. Um, and then point number six here was just sort of an overview that I wanted to, because what I kept thinking of um, about this documentary is I think really encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about a lot lately. I think it ties in very well with the transgender push in our nation. You know, our nation is so sick. Uh, it's so perverse anymore, you know, that so many people in our society, you know, that those who kind of see money and idolize money, that's sort of their ultimate idol in our society. They really see children as nothing more than an easy mark. I know. You know, because you look at these school loans, businesses, industries built on the back of school loans, even to the extent that our federal government underwrites all these school loans, which is the reason why the banks have no problem loaning you money because the government's already guaranteed it. They can loan you whatever you want. Sure, you want to take out a million dollars to be an orthodontist? What does it matter to us? Take it out and the government will make sure we get paid. Um, but they see kids is too dumb to really understand the world that they're walking into. And they're fully willing, and this is the despicable part, they're fully willing to saddle them with really a lifetime of pain for the sake of making them some money. Right? I'm going to build a whole industry. I'm going to take vacations, buy me a car, a new yacht, all on getting this kid that's too stupid to really understand what I'm doing because he's just a child. And I'm going to make him sign up for all these. I'm going to tell him how it's good debt. Don't you worry. This is a good debt. And you think like, how do they get away with this? Because parents shouldn't be allowing any of this. Why don't the parents recognize what's happening? It, it can't happen without parents being involved. Well, and the problem too is our, we, I mean, I'm not even going to alleviate us. We're so enamored with, I, you know, money and status and all these sorts of things too. So we think it makes sense, you know, cause one of the young kids at the table, I think the first one they interviewed, you know, what he said was, you know, I just want to make sure that like my life and my life for my kids is better than the life that I grew up in kind of thing, which is why he was willing to do whatever it took to go to college. But then you want to be like admirable goal, certainly. And that's what we should all strive to do. But Brother, like saddling yourself with 50 grand worth of debt to start your life out on, that ain't the best course of action. You know, if you want to really make that your goal, then do the hard work. Be willing to work hard for this future life and family that you want, knowing it's not going to be easy and enjoying the challenge instead of just being like, the only way to do it is the easy route. I'm going to take the eat, like, they don't know any other way to go. I think they, they haven't don't. been told. They were told this is the only way. And nobody's told them there's options. Well, and it's the people that they respect that are telling them yeah. this is the smart, uh, the smart route. And again, they're telling them that. And maybe they don't even know, because obviously, when you're talking about a school counselor, who knows, they're not getting a cut from Sally Mae, right? But yeah. they're feeding it into this system that's predatory on these kids. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a backbreaking amount of debt for a lot of these kids that they're getting them into. Um, and a lot of these kids, they'll go and get student loans and not even finish the degree. They'll drop out of school. Well, now what did you do for them? Right. 
They don't possibly understand what they're signing on for because they give it out like candy. You don't have to pay it now, pay it later, right? Um, So you're trapping them into a lifetime of indebtedness. And that is going to spill over into other areas of their life. You know, you get out of school, your $35,000 a year teacher job with a $600 school loan debt. Well, you're probably going to be taking out credit cards because you don't have enough money to live on. So that's more debt. Well, you're going to have to take out debt for a car because you can't afford to buy a car. I know. They, they put you. They really just... So your whole life is just wrapped up in interest payments. So these big banks can live lavishly in all of their money. It's no risk because the government supports it all. It's just such a con artist, crooked system. And we just put the whole weight of making this decision on the back of a 17-year-old kid. It's abusive, <laughs> if you think oh about it. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it's the same thing, really, that we're doing in this trans movement. That's why I think... It's affirming them, sense. whatever they want, what makes them happy. It's that affirmation. Right, it's this affirmation. And we're sort of steering them into thinking what's going to make them happy. And the whole reason they're doing it is because it makes money. Right, if you remember the clip we played from Vanderbilt University's hospital, they said as much. They were like... Yeah, these transgendered surgeries, you know, they're like, you know, twenty, forty thousand dollars a pop. They're gonna be having them for years and years, lifetimes worth of medication, a... lifetime. So you just become a cash cow as a transgendered mm-hmm. person. Yep. And they're pushing this on kids that can't possibly understand the ramifications of what they're doing to their life, their body, their soul. They're ruining it. That's why they do things so they don't want parents to be involved. They, no. they want them to do things without parental consent because they know some parents are going to speak wisdom to their kids. Right. So if they can get to the kids and convince the kid without the parent being around or heaven forbid, you've got a moronic, you know, progressive left wing parent. But yeah, you're convincing these kids to do something they can't possibly understand the ramifications of. And you just lock them in for life. I mean, you go and get your genitals cut off. That's, that's a lifetime. You're never going to be out of that medical system. They've just locked you in for life. You go and sign off on $125,000 worth of school loans to be a high school teacher. You're locked in their system for life. You know, you can essentially probably bank on dying with that debt. It's a prison. It's sinful. Um, it's shameful. And man, we've, we've got to be on guard, because I think that's something our nation and probably this world at large is learning. You know, these kids, they're kind of like the easiest person to go and just milk lifetimes worth of money out of. Like, we don't really have to convince a 50 60 year old man um, that's wise and has a lifetime of experience to waste his money. He's too smart for it. If we can just get a 17-year-old to sign off on stuff, 17, 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. And they want these kids to get into college immediately after graduation because they don't want them to have time to go and get a job and have their own place to rent or whatever. They don't want them to experience being on their own before they get in debt because once they experience that and they start paying bills on their own, they're going to realize... Yeah, that's not a wise idea. Like, let your kids go live on their own and pay for everything by themselves and explain to them what it's going to do. I mean, they're going to catch on easier. 
because kids well, yeah. think like a thousand dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> well, and this is also, I mean, this, we could go down this rabbit trail forever. Just the whole shameful way that debt and, you know, even taxes to that extent get paid out where, you know, it'd be a lot more. And Dave Ramsey makes the point there. It'd be a lot more emotional if you actually had to walk into that car dealer and count out $20,000 worth of cash, but you don't, you go up to your bank, you apply for a loan, you might mm -hmm. electronically sign a few documents. And then I have a car, boy, that was cool. You know, you don't even realize that the money was exchanged. It's the same thing with taxes, raise taxes, lower yeah. taxes. You're like, I don't know. I just get a paycheck. But if you had to walk down to the tax office every two weeks and count out your six, $700 every two weeks, realizing you already don't have enough to pay your kids. And then they're like, well, we want to raise taxes. You'd be like, <laughs> you're about to have to fist fight me for that, right? Because you're actually feeling the pain. So it's yeah. a very nefarious way of, you know, uh, them weaseling us out of money. So, um, but we can go down that forever. Uh, yeah. We do want to get to our Bible topic before we're running terribly long. But do you have any last points that you want to talk about in this documentary, the news stories, anything? We'll move on. There's always more point. <laughs> yeah, no, we highly recommend you guys go give it a listen. Um, it's going to be our sermon recommendation for the week. So go watch it, watch it with your family. A lot more to get into than what we were able to cover here. But we do want to talk about our Bible topic. So for our Bible topic, again, we're talking through our really 10 points of the assurances of salvation. And we're on point number two, which is... Um, well, do you want to read the verse here, honey? First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yep. So um, the goodness of our God, he was so kind as to not leave us without a uh, way to understand and know of our, uh, or to have assurance in our salvation. He was kind enough to write us a book to explain the assurances of our salvation and that um, among many places in the Bible, but the book of first John specifically, um, he inspired the apostle John to explain to us pretty clearly how we can be assured of our salvation. And we do always like to point out nowhere in here does he say to remember back on a prayer you said at an altar call 27 years ago. That's not in here. So. Point number two, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, you know, confessing our sins, it's important to realize that that's more than a mere acknowledgement of our sins. Really, what we're talking about here is repenting for our sins. You know, and a repentance is, again, not just saying I'm sorry, but a turning away from sin and going back to God, going back to scripture, going back to observance of what God's called us yes, to. Yes, following what he said. And then later on in the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 18, um, do you want to read this verse, honey? We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Yep. So... You know, the idea of repentance, you know, repentance without lifestyle change 
I would say is not authentic repentance. Um, now that doesn't mean, you know, if you repent, then you're somehow miraculously saved out of whatever sin you're dealing with, you know, in that instance. Sometimes that happens, you know, we know people, we have examples in our circle of friends that have had that experience. They come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, repent, and they're, you know, freed immediately. Yeah. Those are rare circumstances for most of us. Um, you know, most of us, it's a process of sort of repentance for a sin. Then it's a, you know, a prayer for strength, prayer for grace to overcome the sin, and then more repentance when we fall. But those falls should become less and less. Um, and the distance between those falls should become greater and greater. And even, you know, the guilt from each fall should be greater and greater as we progress in our walk, you know, so that it becomes less of a frequent need to go back to repentance. So some people have, you know, in an instant sort of freed from sins. Most of us, though, it's going to be a long process where we see growth. Uh, we see sort of a hatred for sin. Um, the guilt becomes more as we sort of work through this sin, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us out of that. Um, but I think yeah. if it's really easy for you to fall back into a sin that you think you've repented of, I think that would be an indication that your repentance wasn't authentic. Um, I think that would be a good way for me to realize that my repentance wouldn't be very authentic well, if you're doing it and you're concealing it hiding your sin and trying to convince yourself maybe it's not sin yeah because you know god sees it right because yeah you're not necessarily as concerned with those i mean you should be concerned with you know the people but it's, you know, God, first and foremost, remember David's, you know, psalm of repentance against you only have I sinned. Yes. You know, and Second Chronicles, I pull up here, very famous verse, chapter seven, verse 14. And it says, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So, you know, that turn from their wicked ways, that is the repentance, mm -hmm. right? That we're talking about. We're humbled. We're seeking his face in prayer and we're turning away from these wicked ways. That's the confessing of our sins, I think, that yeah. John is talking about here. So, you know, in the vein of repentance, being a uh, assurance of salvation, do you have a lifestyle of repentance? That's something you can examine of yourself. That's what the apostle's telling us. You know, this is an indication that you're a child of God. You know, when, you're, when you sin, are you aware of it? Yeah. Um, again, like we said, does it bring that shame and that guilt that leads you to a place of repentance? That's something you should be aware of. And then again, are your bouts with sin becoming fewer and farther uh, in between? Um, I would say also, do you recognize the signs of things that lead you into those old sinful lifestyles? And are you learning to avoid them? You know, are yeah. you learning to pray for strength to avoid those certain yeah, things? Yeah, do you like hate your sin? Like you have a hatred for it and you want to avoid it. Yeah. 
Yeah, like leaving old lifestyles, even the best old friendships, old whatever happens to be, you're moving away from the things that you know lead you into these temptations and these sins because you hate them. Um, you know, it's, uh, Ephesians 6, verse 13 and 14 says in there, having done all to stand, uh, having done all to stand firm, stand is what he says. You know, kind of that evidence or that idea of, you know, we're doing everything that we kind of can, but then we're praying relying on God to help us stand firm because we don't want to fall back. Because in that same section of scripture, he's telling us to put on the full armor of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're standing firm against these old lifestyles of sin. And we should see evidence and increasing evidence um, as our walk with Christ progresses. I mean, this is sanctification. You know, we're justified when we're saved, but we're sanctified over a lifetime. So we should begin to look more like our Savior the mm-hmm. longer we walk with him. You know, it's going to be little by little, sure. Yeah. Um, but the more we are walking with him, the more we should look like him. And if you realize, you know, I've said I've been a Christian for 25 years, but I look exactly the same as I did 25 years ago. That should scare you. Because God sanctifies those he saves. He doesn't leave us as orphans. So, and I know when we stand before God, we don't have, we were not, we're not going to have shame or, or guilt on judgment day. But that shame and the guilt here while we're on earth, that's a, a godly sorrow that we should have over our sin when we do sin. And it's not a feeling that causes us to hide from God, but instead to come to God, um, knowing that Jesus is our high priest. And for this very reason, because scripture says, if you sin, so implying, like, we're going to sin. And if we do, First John 2, 1 says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we don't have to despair when we sin, but we can praise God for his correction and his Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. And like Spencer said, like conviction is good. Like it's loving. Uh, His will is for his children to be holy. And if you have conviction over your sin, you should rejoice because that means you belong to God. Yeah. Don't despise conviction. Um, God chastises those whom he loves. So uh, be thankful for that. And I was going to say Romans seven, though, I wanted to add on to that. Um, Because verse 21, 25 tells us that we will have a struggle with sin, with our flesh warring against the spirit. And Paul had this struggle. So why would we not? And it says, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. I catch that right there. The evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. He says, for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And repentance, repentance is a lifelong battle that we'll have. Um, we're going to have to keep doing that. It's a turning away, turning away. Um, it's a spiritual battle against the flesh. And, but we can overcome. We can overcome. We're not going to always fall into the same sins. So God does provide a way out of every temptation. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, uh, the assurance of salvation, right? Are you a person of repentance? Um, cause again, this is the evidence of your salvation. And, um, might I just add, you know, it's not just repentance because it's what we're called to do. Again, I would say that isn't probably true repentance. It's repentance because like Nikki said, we're grieved or our sin we're repenting because our sin grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of the one who loves us, the one who died for us. That's why we're repenting. Um, our repentance, and also you could say as well as our obedience, that mm -hmm. should be driven by love for the Father, love for the Son, and for the Spirit. So obedience, repentance um, should be out of love and not out of just simple um, that's what we're told to do. So I'm going to do it mm -hmm. begrudgingly. Now we do it because we love him and we love him because he first loved us. Um, so do you have any last thoughts on that before we roll into our sermon recommendation that we've already talked about? Mm -hmm. No, just reiterating, you know, like, uh, I just want to say like, it would be legalism to tell someone you need to, um, quit sinning and quit sinning, you know, and focus on it. But when you bring in our advocate, Jesus, um, it's just like a picture. You have to like preach the gospel over and over again to others and to yourself. Um, throughout our whole lives, we need to be reminded of the gospel or we do despair. We'll be like Paul says, I, what I will to do is, you know, I don't remember how he says it exactly, but He's like, I will to do good. Like what I will to do, I do not do in Romans 7. He um, yeah. explains that. And, and again, like even Paul dealt with it. And why would we not um, have that struggle? So I just always should be encouraging those who are caught up in sin. And, and there's sins that people are caught up in that I've never dealt with personally. I know there's addictions and things like that. I've never dealt really bad with addictions. So I think we need to be encouraging with the gospel because Satan will want to beat people down in their sin. He doesn't want people to remember that Jesus is our advocate. He's our high priest. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he immediately forgives your sins the second you confess them. And you just say, this is sin. Please forgive me. Um, help me to turn away from it because we can't repent even without his help. We can't even turn away from our sin on our own. We have to say, I'm weak. Please help me turn from this sin. Help me to follow you. Yeah, we're helpless. Um, well, that's good. So uh, again, you know, for our sermon recommendation here, we've already talked about it. It's the documentary we reviewed, Borrowed Future. Um, we recommend you guys go give it a watch. It's free, you know, it's on YouTube, doesn't cost you a cent. And I think it's very informative, very good mm -hmm. watch. And um, 
yeah, I think I just just think all around they did a good job on that. But again, I think it ties into so many different other avenues where you just think, man, our kids are prey for this wicked world and we need to do a better job. I think, I mean, largely as a society, but all we can really focus on is ourselves and leading and guiding them properly um, in this world. So that's all we got. We'll be back on Monday. We're working our way back through the gospel of Luke um, for the rest of this month. And then we'll be coming back next week. As long as the world doesn't fall apart with assurance number three. So that is all we got for you guys today. God bless.